Welcome to episode 13 of News Points on the Air, a production of the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventist. I'm your host, Milan Medley. The subject on the table for this episode is extremely delicate and complex, and some may even say controversial. We're here to talk about the Equality Act and the Fairness for All Act. The Equality Act, if passed, will expand protections found in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include matters related to gender identity and sexual orientation. It would be a landmark piece of civil rights legislation. Here's the thing. Due to religious liberty concerns, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is in opposition of the act and has instead backed the Fairness for All or FFA Act. Supporters of FFA say it advocates the rights of the LGBTQAI plus community, citizens in secular places, while maintaining the ability to make decisions related to religious core beliefs. This is really tricky terrain, and to be honest, the church's stance doesn't quite sit well with me, and I'm nowhere close to being alone in this thinking. Many have been openly and vocally against it as well. That's why our guests were so eager to come on to this podcast to have this conversation with me. I'm so grateful to have Melissa Reed, who is the Associate Director of Public Affairs and Religious Liberty for the North American Division, and Todd McFarland, who is the Associate General Counsel of the North American Division Seventh-day Adventist and the Seventh-day Adventist Church's Global Headquarters, also known as the General Conference. So he works for the World Headquarters and for the North American Division. And they're here to walk us through the church's position in the two acts. And I'm taking extra time with this introduction and with this to make it clear that the intention of this conversation is not to attack the church, but to have an honest conversation on precedent and perception. I'm so glad you've decided to join us for this episode. Let's get started. Melissa, Todd, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. (laughs) So Melissa, can you first tell me um, when the Adventist Church decides to engage in legislation um, in the U.S. um, as it relates to religious liberty? You know, what are some things that you look for or kind of keep like an alert on? Um, You know, tell me about that process. Sure, thanks for the question and thanks again for the opportunity to chat uh, today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So the Seventh-day Adventist Church really has um, been uh, an advocate um, to our members of Congress um, and and also of course on the state level as well since really the inception of our denomination. I think we look back at the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and and really saw um, our faith leaders um, standing up for the rights um, of, the, of our church members and of the uh, institution itself, but also, I think very importantly, uh, the rights of others, other people of faith and of no faith. Um, so it's really been something that we have, have been involved in, you know, since the late 1800s, 
uh, and continue to do so um, both uh, here at the, uh, at the North American Division and also at the General Conference. Uh, but, as you, but as I said, you know, we're, we're really paying attention to um, legislation that affects both the individual's religious freedom, but also institutional religious freedom as well. And Todd, can you list or describe some noteworthy um, laws or even cases we've been, the church has been involved in related to religious freedom? Sure. The Adventist Church has had a longstanding role in religious freedom issues. One of the earliest cases that we were involved in is an important one called Sherbert versus Verner. That was a case that dealt with unemployment benefits, but it really set the sort of standard uh, at the time for free exercise claims and how those interacted with state laws. On the legislative side, we've been involved in a number of, of bills, uh, RELUPA, Religious Land Use and Issues Persons Act, we were a big part of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, you know, a bipartisan bill passed in the early 90s, we were a big part of. Um, and so we have, and then another, you know, other bills, you know, related to everything, you know, from pension benefits and how church plans interact with those. So there's a mm. whole range of issues that we worked on. I also know that we'd worked on heavily uh, the tobacco uh, bill, a uh, legislation that was passed a few years ago. That was a an, uh, early, uh, the Adventist Church is one of the earliest denominations to uh, support and participate in that uh, effort. And I'm glad you mentioned- just this Oh, go ahead, Melissa. Sorry, I was just gonna jump in and say, you know, this last year when COVID relief um, uh, appropriations were, were taking place, that was another conversation that we were involved in as far as trying to uh, re-elevate uh, charitable giving uh, contribution levels as far as tax deduction. Okay, okay. And Todd, I'm glad you brought up the Religious Freedom uh, Restoration Act because that's something we'll come back to later in our conversation. Um, so what's driving this conversation today, what brings you both here today is we're talking about the Equality Act. So Todd, I was asked, I would like to know if you can, you know, uh, facts on the ground, bare bones, well, not bare bones, we know what are the key elements of the Equality Act? Sure. So what the Equality Act does in its simplest form, and the implications of this are a whole lot different. So don't be confused by its simplicity. Yeah. It, and we can talk about implications sure, there too. Sure. It takes the entire breadth, really, of civil rights laws in the United States at the federal level, and it just wholesale adds in uh, sexual orientation and gender identity as one of the protected categories. It makes no exceptions for religion or it doesn't give any more exceptions there. It also uh, says the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, basically is repealed, but it, it, it says it can't be used, um, you know, for any of these kind of claims that can contain in the Equality Act. So that is in the, you know, 62nd version of what it does. Right. Uh, it adds those to the civil rights laws. Yeah, and the civil rights laws you're referring to, that's the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yes, well, and it's more than just that. It's across the board. I should also say one of the other things it does, um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 has a lot of different components. Mm -hmm. uh, one of those is what's known as public accommodation. Um, and that is sort of what it sounds like. Uh, most familiar with it back during the Civil Rights era, things like lunch counters and hotels and swimming pools and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The way the Civil Rights Act is written right now, those areas of public accommodation are very narrow. Um, and so the other thing that the Equality Act does is it vastly expands what is considered a public accommodation to really almost any space uh, that a person off the street might be able to walk into. 
uh, it also includes not just physical spaces, but virtual spaces as well. So online uh, activities, really almost anything other than a private residence uh, and private home, uh, it would now be a place of public accommodation. Okay, interesting. And Melissa, when did the Adventist Church decide, you know, when did it first come on the church's radar? And then when did, when was their mobilization to, you know, get involved? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we've been paying attention to the growing tension between LGBT, LGBT civil rights and religious freedom for quite some time. Um, as we all know, public opinion in America around LGBT civil rights has gone, uh, undergone really uh, something of a revolution over the past a decade. Um, and it's been a shift that has been driven really in large part by heightened awareness of the legal, legal vulnerabilities uh, faced by gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Americans. Uh, unfortunately, during that same time period, religious freedom, which really was once cherished as an American ideal, uh, was inappropriately rebranded uh, by uh, opponents as uh, the right to discriminate. And so we were approached by a couple of advocacy partners back in 2016 with the invitation to work together to craft uh, a balanced, lasting legislative response to this ongoing conflict and bridge the gap between those two communities. And so what's come together is really an informal coalition of diverse faith traditions, LGBT rights groups, and religious freedom proponents uh, developing around these, those shared beliefs. And then that's the Fairness for All um, Act, but that's something we can get, we'll, we'll address fairness for all. I want to take people through, you know, um, how we how we got there and how we got to where we are today um, for someone who, you know, is completely unfamiliar or may have seen a headline. And so we're here to kind of like walk you through, walk us through and, you know, just ask some questions. So Todd, you already hinted at this. Yeah, Mom, just before yeah. we get to that, I should say our involvement in getting exemptions on civil rights laws dealing with LGBT issues mm -hmm. predates fairness for all that Melissa was talking about. There was prior laws called the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, ENDA, which did pass the House and the Senate, but separately uh, and became law. Those efforts I think started, if my memory is correct, in the 2008-10 time period, and we were involved in, in, in those events as well. So okay. it's, it's we've really, I think, been involved in um, this space really since its beginning um you know when, when there's been sort of proposals I sh and i should say serious proposals uh you know that got to committee and, and had a chance of and then got voted uh the adventist church has been involved in that really since the beginning okay so i think that you know kind of goes right into my next question um in a sense since we've been um this this conflict has you know obviously been rising and then it's been picking up more momentum. But for this act in particular, why does the Adventist Church see it and its implications as a threat? So for a number of reasons, um, you know, first of all, I think it would be not completely accurate to say that we view the Quality Act as a threat uh, because there's large parts of it that we that we support and have supported for a very long time. Um, it is in many regards, I think, a lost opportunity because, and it's not an opportunity that's gone. I mean, we just had today as we're recording this, the hearings on the Senate right. uh, on the Equality Act, the head of, of HRC said that he was willing to uh, talk to uh, Republican senators and negotiate and make clarifications on the bill. And HRC uh, meaning uh, the Human Rights Campaign? 
Yes, human rights campaign, which mm -hmm. is, as they would describe themselves, the leading LGBT advocacy group in the country. Okay. Some of their some of their other advocacy groups might not agree with them, but they are one of the biggest players. Um, and I guess, Todd, we could also say that they're probably the authors of the Equality Act. Would that be correct? Yeah, them, okay. along with some others, they were a huge proponent of it. And the, and the Equality Act was definitely a advocacy written bill. Uh, that was then was then was uh, submitted. Um, so um, so we see it as a lost opportunity, but the, there are some challenges there, um, and some of those haven't gotten as much attention maybe in the public square as they sh as they should. There's been a lot of focus on women's sports, and uh, mm. and also uh, you know women's colleges and so forth. Uh, that is a concern, and we don't want to diminish that concern, but that is far from the the major concern. Um, one of the major concerns for the Adventist church is an area of higher education. So Adventists um, in Adventist colleges uh, and others who attend take advantage of what's known as Title IV funding. And this is things like Pell Grants and student loans. And, you know, as much as I think 80% of our students at our colleges and universities are getting some type of aid there. Now, this is aid that's going to the student, uh, not directly to the school, but, you know, our schools and our students are really dependent upon that to go there. This bill threatens that uh, that that support that our admin students get. How is that uh, threatened? So what it does is it would it would mean that the schools would have to drop their conduct standards and also dissolve their sex segregated dorms. So the ability to have conduct standards for LGBT students would go away. Uh, you wouldn't be able to make a differentiation between uh, a marriage between one man and one woman and two men or two women. Uh, that distinction would be considered discrimination. I think sex stereotyping in the uh, words of the Equality Act, um, it would also mean that our single sex dorms would most likely go away. We wouldn't be able to have those. In addition to that, it would also challenge us on transgender issues um, as far as you know, our ability to sort of deal with those issues. I want to be very clear, transgender students are welcome and in fact do attend our schools, but you know, we need to integrate that into our understanding of how our faith relates to that issue. So yeah, the threat to, the threat to uh, our higher education is, is one of the major components. Other organizations such as ADRA, our Adventist Development Relief Agency would also be threatened because of their hiring. ADRA supports and provides services to people of all faiths, no faiths across the board when it provides its international development work around the world. However, as part of its mission, it hires Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, this program would, would restrict that um, and would mean that they would no longer be able to hire uh, solely Seventh-day Adventists, or really even to take religion into account. Uh, and also it would create a question as far as even in the local congregation and church about uh, what spaces are sort of considered public accommodation and might have to be opened up to groups that local church may not be comfortable with, um, or to not just to groups, but also the groups that may have views they're not comfortable with. So, you know, the main sanctuary itself uh, is probably not under threat. Now, the Equality Act doesn't make an exemption for it, but we're fairly confident that the courts would, in fact, you know, say that the main sanctuary can't be a place of a public accommodation, but things like the fellowship hall, ancillary buildings, uh, a recreation center, these are all places that our churches want to open up and make available uh, to the community as part of the outreach and community service. But the Equality Act would basically say if you do that and you make them available to the public, then you have you can no longer control what views are expressed there or what groups can come in and use it. And so we think for that, and there's a lot of other reasons, but just quickly, that's some of the main highlights. So that's a lot, <laughs> a lot of implications. And I, I just want to like 
I have like a, a quick follow-up or maybe not quick, but follow-up. How often are those um, like, you know, those hypotheticals or, you know, the implications mm-hmm. of, of everything you just mentioned, like, and for the last one, for example, you know, like offering like a church, offering up its grounds or its fellowship halls and having um, some of the LGBTQ uh, community wanted to use its grounds. Is that an off, is, does that happen a lot? You know, is this something that's really to be uh, kind of stressed over? You know, is it like- So, so yeah. well, it doesn't, I mean, well, first of all, it's, the Equality Act is not the law yet. So under the Equality right. Act, it doesn't happen at all because that's not the law. But yes, I mean, you've seen the threats uh, to, you know, religious, for instance, the, where it's happened mostly so far uh, is in places that, um, that have um, uh, been for profit. Um, and so you saw the wedding venues and so forth that they could no longer restrict, uh, even though the owners had religious views. But yes, there was a church in New Jersey that had a gazebo and a New Jersey law. They said they had to open that up to same-sex couple. The state of Massachusetts put guidance out that said that, it, yeah, a sanctuary is protected from its public accommodation. But if you have something, quote, secular, like a spaghetti supper, uh, then that, that would make it an area of public accommodation. Um, and of course, those are the kind of events that churches open up all the time and want to have. So yes, I think it's a very real threat. It's not just a hypothetical. It has happened in limited circumstances where there's state and local laws. And once it becomes federal law, then it's the conflict is going to be pretty much more significant. Yeah. And you mentioned, and I, Azure. oh, go ahead, uh, Melissa. I was just, yeah, sure. I was just going to point out that also, I think it's important to note that it just takes one time to really sort of devastate uh, whether it's a local house, house of worship or whatever, as far as, you know, one of our <clears throat> um, concerns with the Equality Act is, as Todd said, how sort of vague it is in a lot of its, you know, there, there's, you know, they'll say, um, oh, this won't, this won't um, affect religious, but they won't, but it's not clarified. It's just very broad, sort of expansive lang- and, and vague language. And so what that means is, and, and what they, what opponents are, proponents of the Equality Act have said is that the courts, the court system will then sort of decide, um, you know, that definition. But we believe, and, and why we've been, you know, for the past several years involved in, in trying to come up with a legislative response uh, to these tensions, that, you know, this is the responsibility of Congress um, so that that institutions do not have to um, go through legal battles that are expensive, that are time consuming, that, you know, in all possibility could bankrupt their institution or seriously financially cripple it. And so I think, um, you know, while it may not be a common occurrence, it certainly could be a very significant one. So one of the things that I wanted to add on, you know, Todd mentioned um, some of the potential implications for our Seventh-day Adventist institutions of higher education. Um, And he mentioned, you know, federal funding, federal financial aid and Pell Grants. And I think that it's important to note that this is especially concerning for the hundreds of thousands of religious college students who are people of color. Um, And we know that from statistics within our own institutions, but especially when students of color are more likely to rely on these types of funding. And so in essence, the Equality Act as it's currently drafted would make it harder for poor minority and immigrant students to achieve their uh, college dreams. And I think uh, that's important to know. And so in, let's say, uh, Equality Act becomes law and um, we lose. So in, a, in you're saying in an attempt to um, protect 
one class, it, 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 it yeah. may harm another class, but is that in, in a way saying that one class is higher or more important than the other? Well, that's a great question. And I'm glad you asked it because I think that's the, our, our whole premise as, as sponsors of um, a competing piece of legislation, the Fairness for All Act, in that we believe no, what America has done so well, and you mentioned the Civil Rights Act of 1964, is really find that balance between competing interests and competing uh, vulnerable populations. And so um, what we believe is that um, this is an, an unnecessary conflict between LGBT communities and their civil rights, which again, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is completely supportive of, publicly supportive uh, and, and proudly so. Um, but also protecting, maintaining um, that the, the religious freedom, the religious identity of people of faith. Yeah, so I want to like uh, stay in that arena for a little bit with my, you know, next question. So, you know, we, we say, you know, we protect, we want to protect the rights and acknowledge their rights um, as someone personally, and you both know, I, you know, I'm passionate about civil rights and as we've already mentioned, this is a bit of an extension of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Is it, this is pretty landmark, you know, if it's passed and even like where we are right now is pretty historic. But for me, you know, seeing that the church that I work for and grown up in is against it to see, you know, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is an opponent to this major civil rights movement you know, even like the, the term used, you know, wrong side of history. Someone could say we're on the wrong side of history with this. You know, was there a discussion on the optics of the Adventist Church coming out against it? You know, both of you and Todd, you guys can answer. I sure. Think you're, well, you're yeah, I was going to say, I really appreciate the optics. And I, I guess um, that's what I, sort of how I would encourage you uh, to maybe look at the issue is that the optics of a Christian uh, faith tradition taking a public stand for these rights of LGBT individuals in the workplace, in housing and public accommodation. We are, we are one, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is one of very few um, denominations who have done so. Um, yeah. And so, I, you know, I think that's something to really be proud of. I think, again, like the optics of living out our faith by both honoring God and, and who he's called us to be and, and honoring our neighbors at the same time. You know, I think that's the, the optics um, that I'm appreciated and proud of. Yeah, the other faith groups that I, that I could find, um, the National Association of Evangelists, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, uh, the Christ of Latter-day, uh, Church of Latter-day Saints, Coalition of Jewish Values, Council of Christian Colleges and Universities were listed among with the seventh, well, Seventh-day Adventist Church was listed among that group. Just, just, just to be clear, the USCCB, the USS Conference of Catholic Bishops, is is adamantly opposed to this. Uh, they're not, they're not on that list. Uh, it's the opposed. The, oh, they're opposed to both the Equality Act and Fairness for All. Oh, okay, this is and, for the Equality it, Act. The list yeah, that I mentioned. So, yeah. Well, they're opposed to the Equality Act. I mean, on this issue, us and USCCB are not on the same page at all. Got it. Got it. Um, the yes. other group, National oh, Association of Evangelicals, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, CCCU, uh, those groups, we are, are, are all part of our coalition. Yeah, but they're also, you know, and this is what you mentioned, uh, Melissa, it's what you hinted at, you know, there are other 
faith groups on the other side who are opponents, I mean, proponents of this. So you have the Evangelical Lutheran Church in the U.S., Episcopal Church, and other um, denominations and faith groups that would consider themselves more progressive. So there's this split, it seems, or, you know, or, you know, a, you do see a clear division um, in terms of certain faith groups who are on one, one side or the other. But in terms of our community, what message do you think that's sending to um, those who are LGBTQ, AI+, you know, who already struggle with belonging and feeling safe in our community because of how they identify and who they are. Um, what message is this sending to them? What message do you think it is sending? Well, I, I, let me, I'll speak to that. I, I think the message is what Melissa said before is that we support a bill that provides rights. I mean, you can't look at the church's opposition of the Equality Act or as drafted, and I think that's an important phrase, without looking at fairness for all in that context. The church did not come into this, as some of the others um, have done, some other Christian faiths have done, simply opposing it. Uh, you know, the churches that you mentioned that are in favor of have different theological beliefs than us. Um, so yes, we are different than the Episcopalians. We are different than, you know, the Lutheran, uh, you know, the Luther, not Lutheran Missouri Synod, they're very opposed to this, uh, in that we have biblically based and grounded theological beliefs when it comes to same-sex marriage, same-sex behavior, and conduct standards. Um, and, you know, so I think the optics for, you know, those LGBT individuals in the church should be uh, that the church is supporting their their rights uh, in in the public sphere, but you know the church also has the right to operate in the public sphere and not have quite as quite frankly a religious view uh, of others forced upon it. And were you about to say something, Melissa? Okay, um, okay. So Todd and and Melissa, you can you can join this um, answer this too. But Todd. Um, as we had mentioned, and you know, we could say, I, I can say, I probably know the answer, but just so that it's said, you know, with this being an extension of the Civil Rights Act 1964, um, what was the church's stance with that act? Did we say anything? Did we oppose? You know, did we say anything in support or opposition? Where was the church then? You know, and we, the Adventist Church wasn't in great, uh, you know, they weren't leading champions of what equality would look like, you know, in terms of like US, the Adventist Church in the US at the time, but where did they stand when, when it came to this act? So, well, first of all, I don't agree that the Adventist Church has not been on the right side on equality issues. The Adventist Church from its founding was founded by a bunch of abolitionists. We had a radically opposed to slavery. And the Adventist Church, again, throughout its history, has been one of the most diverse churches uh, you know, we didn't split off like the Southern Baptists and others. We're running HBCU uh, and, 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 and otherwise reaching out to, um, you know, people of color, uh, and, you know, what was known as, you know, Black people back then. As far as the Civil Rights Act is 1964, you know, I'm not the historian on that. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, the church never opposed that. And there was no reason for us to oppose it because it had the the appropriate balance there you know you referred to it this bill is just an extension of it it's more than an extension of it it is a, an expansion of it too it expands the definition of um of the uh, area of public accommodation considerably um which is a huge threat it also expands uh the area of, of what federal funds can be denied for and it also puts um SOGI, sexual orientation and gender identity, in the class of race 
as opposed to probably a more better analogy, which is the class of, of gender. Because while there are very few, if any, ex well, there are a handful of exemptions for race, there are more areas in which gender is and sex is considered um, um, you know, exceptions to that for religious reasons and so forth, things like a BFOQ, um, you know, more limited uh, protections as far as it's not mentioned as a public accommodation, because we have generally understood in society that while racial distinctions and so forth don't have their place, uh, you know, we got rid of the Negro Leagues a long time ago when it came to baseball, you know, in areas like sports and so forth, we do recognize gender differences and that's one issue. But more importantly, even getting away from, from the sports issue, there's been other areas in which we understand that uh, organizations and churches uh, constitutionally, whether we agree with it or not, have the right to make those distinctions that they don't in the area of race. So it's not just an extension of it, it's also an expansion of it. So, you know, and I know we are a diverse, we, we are a diverse denomination and uh, ethnically, um, and we do, like you mentioned, we have an HBCU, we do have Oakland University, but there are plenty of, you know, Black Adventist leaders who would push back and say, um, you know, especially during the time when that act was passed in the 60s that, you know, uh, there that there was not uh, examples of racism. So that's so that's kind of where the question. Well, I, I just want to be from. very, yeah, I just want to be very clear. That was not meant to defend everything the Adventist church has done, or there hasn't been individual instances of racism. But again, um, you know, I think this idea, I think the fundamental problem with the question is the analogizing and saying that sexual orientation is just like race. Um, it's not, uh, and even the churches in its own, its own um, uh, statements, as far as dealing internally, both for its standards for membership, its standards for church employment and so forth, make a very strong distinction, an important distinction uh, between the status of same-sex attraction and the conduct. So unlike race, which is a status-based uh, distinction, uh, the church's view on sexual orientation status-based, in fact, conduct-based. And as our statement said, uh, individuals, uh, regardless of sexual orientation, who conform themselves to the church's teaching on marriage, human sexuality, et cetera, are free and do participate in the life of the church. Um, so I think that's another distinction that the church makes, you know, that makes it really in a different category than, than race. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And, uh, and not to belabor this point, because this even comes to the larger point of like, um, uh, different groups, per different protected classes, you know, when there's a conflict between, um, between different classes. So, you know, you, you stated, uh, Todd, you know, how and even the church race and uh, orientation and identity aren't on the same level, but advocates would say, yes, it's the same. Um, you know, with uh, sexual identity, gender, and race, you know, both deserve equal and um, equal protected status. And I, and at least from my understanding with the research, that's part of the language that's in the Equality Act as well. But Melissa, I wanted to get into um, fairness for all, um, which is kind of like a response to, um, you know, the momentum behind the Equality Act and kind of like the churches are, well, we didn't write it, we're supporting this, you know, kind of like the response to the Equality Act. So can you uh, walk me through the timeline for that? Sure, sure. Uh, we touched on it just a little bit. 
Um, and and just to say, we actually were involved in the drafting of the legislation. Okay. Uh, uh, the esteemed Tom McFarland that's joining me on the podcast today is, is one of those illegal experts who was. Many hours um, stuck in a conference room helping draft that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and also, um, you know, our involvement, and, and I think I could speak with our coalition members, uh, for our coalition members as well, was not... Um, in a response to the Equality Act, but rather in a response to sort of the social dynamics that I was describing earlier and seeing how those dynamics between the tensions between those, uh, the, you know, LGBT civil rights and religious freedom could be resolved um, effectively uh, without, as we talked about, elevating one um, area over the other. And so we certainly saw that, we've seen that ha um, happen on the state level with um, anti LGBT anti-discrimination legislation that wraps in or includes those religious protections. We saw that happen in Utah. We've seen it happen uh, in New York State, in California. All of those, you know, when we talk about the Equality Act and the conversation about the Equality Act, we often mention that there are several states that do not you know, one of the needs for um, <clears throat> comprehensive federal um, not LGBT non-discrimination legislation is because some states do not have that, but the majority of those who do already have um, those anti-discrimination uh, uh, protections for LGBT individuals, the majority by and far, also include those religious exemptions. And that is what our challenge is. That is where our concern is as far as the Equality Act. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is, again, where we are uh, proponents of standing up for the rights and the dignity of LGBT individuals um, in, in their housing, uh, in their workplace, in their public accommodation. And that's not the issue um, and so I think, uh, unfortunately, people of faith who hold that traditional view uh, of marriage and sexuality have really been sort of um, misrepresented as far as the fact that we are trying to find that balance between the two. But jumping back to the fairness for all. So I said, you know, in, in 2016 is really when we began the conversation about actually working um, with some, some other advocacy partners to come up with um, a legislative response to this conflict. And so um, that coalition came together really around a couple of different shared beliefs. One is which um, no American should lose their home or their livelihood simply for being lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. Again, this is very, um, you know, again, I would say um, I'm so proud of the Seventh-day Adventist Church for, for being a part of a group that is saying that about their lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans transgender uh, members and brothers and sisters. Um, and so the second um, belief is that religious persons should not be forced to live, work, or serve their community in ways that violate their sincerely held beliefs. And again, we sort of, um, when I talked earlier, I talked about sort of religious freedom really being unfairly rebranded as the right to discriminate. And I mean, for the vast majority of our history, instead of being referred to as the right to discriminate, it was the, the right to live out your faith. Um, and it's just been as society has 
recently changed as far as um, sort of its, its uh, morals and standards and conducts that that has been rebranded. And so what we believe is that it's possible to find a practical and durable solution to this ongoing challenge of rights by working together and by rejecting this polarizing rhetoric, this all or nothing sort of approach. And so the result of that several years of partnership is the Fairness for All Act that we've referenced a couple of times. It was introduced in the House in 2019, it was reintroduced this um, session uh, just a few months ago or just maybe even a month ago. Um, this time with I think more than double the number of, of co-sponsors um, and this year we are anticipating that it will be introduced in the Senate as well. Are you, um, is it, can you see why with, with that um, explanation and even just someone who would um, research fairness for all, why they would still see that, um, that act as providing uh, religious groups with the quote license to discriminate, meaning we're, we're okay with, um, you know, yes, you deserve housing. Um, employment shouldn't be compromised in a secular setting, but do, are we then saying it's okay for us to still be able to discriminate when it comes to employment, uh, for example? So can you see why some, and especially opponents of Fairness for All would say, yeah, you say, um, you know, we, you want um, equal rights for those in the LGBT community, but you're still giving allowances or creating leaving space for discrimination to occur. Yeah, in your setting, but you know, discrimination is still happening. Well, but, but, but I think the answer is that, um, you know, a church has the right to have the people that represent it uphold its standards. And so, and again, this is only dealing with conduct. This is not dealing with status. It's only the, in fact, there's a provision in the employment section that says that churches have to, with reasonable consistency, I believe is the phrase, don't quote me on that, but something along that lines, have to apply its conduct standards. So a church that simply only fire, I shouldn't say, and I got to be careful here because there's certain category of workers that the churches have absolute protection for, but you know, a, a religious organization that fired, say a secretary and so forth, and only fired the gay and lesbians, but not any uphold any standards for its straight employees could still be held viable, liable under this. But yes, I mean- And should. Yeah, it, it is the, 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 the question, you know- And that's under fairness for all, Todd, what you just yeah, said. Yeah, that's under fairness for all. And so the, labeling something discrimination you know, is a very pejorative term because, I mean, on one hand, you're right. We are discriminating between those who uphold the church's standards and conduct and those who reject it. And, you know, for gay and lesbians who don't want to uphold the church's standards, you know, why would you think that you should be able to work for an organization that you don't believe in support? Um, you know, that, that, is, that, is, that is not a reasonable expectation for LGBT individuals to say, well, I want to work, I want to take your tithe dollars, I want you to pay me a, a salary, but I'm going to live a life that is inconsistent with your standards and what you teach. And I don't think it's unfair for- Could that be an interpretation though, maybe? Huh? Could that perhaps come down to interpretation? Well, no, I mean, if a person is, if a person is 
is, I mean, yes, an interpretation of the Bible and our biblical beliefs, but I think mm -hmm. everyone agrees the church should be able to have that. But a person who, you know, who, and again, to be very clear, the Adventist church has applied its sexual conduct standards deployment against straight individuals multiple times more than it ever has gays and lesbians. So the idea that we have these conduct standards around human behavior, and it's not just sex, by the way, the church has other standards when it comes to alcohol use, tobacco use, et cetera, Sabbath observance, uh, that this is just simply a pretext to get rid of gay people and that we don't care about the sexual misconduct of, you know, uh, of straight uh, employees is just, it's not upheld by the facts. So yeah, uh, a church needs to be able to, you know, if you want to use the word discriminate, discriminate between people who support and uphold its standards and those who don't. All right, Melissa, where are you about to? Um, I, I guess I was just gonna say, taking it sort of out of the religious, uh, you know, people of faith and LGBT uh, civil rights, uh, sort of out of that context, but still talking about those balancing of protected classes. We talked a little bit before about gender and, and all male or all female colleges or universities. So we look at like um, Spelman, for example, or Morehouse. So those practices of only admitting a particular gender of student, you could refer to that as discriminatory, right? But when, again, we are looking at those balances, balance of um, uh, protected classes and the overall mission of those educational institutions, again, I think we can recognize it makes sense for this to be appropriate, you know, this for this to take place, for this to occur. So I was trying to take it out of sort of that, the context um, of LGBT civil rights and religious freedom. And that prompted a thought, um, Melissa, um, Todd, um, has there ever been, and, and Melissa too, has there ever been such a, a conflict between different protected classes? You know, we're having, um, uh, you know, religious freedom and, you know, um, when it comes to LGBT community, you know, it seems maybe because I'm living through it now that it seems so grand. And I wonder, were there other protective classes that were in conflict like this in our in recent history? You know, I don't not that I can no, not really. I mean, first of all, the whole idea that government is going to protect certain groups and protect class locations is a relatively new one. I mean, it's certainly post-Civil okay. War, uh, and there were some 19, there were some post-Civil War laws, 1981 and so forth, that protected contract and so forth. And then, you know, and then you get to the civil rights era. But one of the reasons we haven't seen conflicts like this before is there's always been an understanding that you're going to balance and give exemptions for religion. You know, even the Civil Rights Act of 1964 contains a number of exemptions for religious organizations. Um, and those protected. Uh, those groups, it is really the Equality Act that stands out as the really, I can't think of another situation where we passed a civil rights law and have not had any protection for religion within it. Um, so, so what, yeah, just with, real quick. So what's changed really isn't the uh, looking for an exemption for religious or accommodation for religions is the fact that those, you know, are not available. Yeah, I was just going to add on to what Todd was saying as far as an illustration from the hearings that we referenced today that are happening in the um, Senate Judiciary Committee uh, for the Equality Act. Uh, one of the uh, bill proponents actually referenced the Americans for Disabilities Act. Again, people with disabilities are another protected class under the Civil Rights Act. But you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act, again, has those carve-outs, those religious protections that Todd is talking about 
And, and this is the first time that we are seeing civil rights legislation that, that by and does not respect or does not uh, mirror those, those carve outs that we've seen previously. And that also includes uh, overriding, I think, Todd is the word you use, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And do you think, um, I guess, you know, the HRC, who you said, you know, basically they wrote it or, you know, fueled this bill. Do you think they, they believed that the FRRA, or sorry, had a little dyslexic moment, the RFRA. RIFRA. RIFRA. That's kind of hard. That's kind of hard for me to say. I'm going to do that. Um, Do you think there was uh, a perception of uh, abuse of that to, you know, further discrimination? Well, I'm certainly, I mean, I'll let HR speak for themselves. The fact that they're not happy with RIFRA, even though it was passed overwhelmingly in the House and the Senate and signed by a Democratic president, uh, and was only really restoring what the Supreme Court had illegitimately, I, in my view, taken away in Smith. Yes, they have not liked in Smith. Employment Division versus Smith was a case that Riffer was attempting to reply, respond to. Okay. And so, yes, Riffer has been on their hit list for a very long time. Uh, and I think it just goes to the fact that they, you know, they just feel that, you know, religious organizations and religious liberty just needs to cede to, um, you know, to, to LGBT rights. And, you know, what we've suggested and what we think moving forward is a way that can accommodate both interests. Uh, it does not give, you know, people of faith and religious organizations just the right to sort of run untrammeled through the through the country. But it says that they can still participate. They can still you know, have their beliefs and practice those and carry out in the public square and not be discriminated against. And LGBT individuals, um, you know, also receive the protections that they, uh, that, you know, that they're entitled to. I think another important point, and I'm going back to the, I think going back to the committee that took place this morning, just because that's what's fresh in my mind. Mm-hmm. But I think an important point that, t- that, that was made was that the majority of claimants um, under RIFRA, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, it's hard for me to say too, um, <laughs> is, um, are actually uh, not, not Christians, uh, which of course is, Chris, you know, Christianity is, is uh, the majority faith tradition here in the United States, or, or, uh, but it's, it's actually um, uh, it, uh, Muslims and Jews who are the, who most often have made um, those claims under the Religious Freedom uh, uh, Restoration Act. And so I thought that was a, an interesting point because again, if we look at, um, you know, uh, minority faith traditions who, you know, are, are targets of hate crimes and, and, and such, uh, who are applying for security grants, all of those sorts of things, uh, you know, we sort of talked about the unintended consequences of other vulnerable populations earlier when we talked about higher education and, and uh, receiving federal fund. And I think that's another illustration of then uh, those unintended consequences. So um, as of today, uh, so March 17, the Senate um, is hearing, or are they, are they taking a vote today on the Equality Act or is just going through discussion right now? So as of time of this recording, um, the Senate is, you know, reviewing um, the Equality Act, uh, the Senate or the bill, the act needs 10 uh, Republicans to vote for it, um, to push it through. And it seems unlikely that that will happen. Maybe that may change. Um, so it passed the House, but it's in the hands of the Senate now. 
what are your predictions for the Equality Act? And then we can, um, or maybe maybe it will be one and the same, you know, how do you think Fairness for All will fare? Um, because it doesn't seem to have support on the Democratic side. So what's the future for this uh, legislation? Well, I mean, I think that this is the congressional season, this, this congressional season that's happening right now, our session is really a prime opportunity to pass some sort of comprehensive um, LGBT non-discrimination. Um, if we as a body could come together uh, to protect one another, both LGBT individuals and people of faith. Um, and I think too often when we sort of come to this moment during um, you know, sort of a, a tough policy dilemma and one that I think concerns really the core of American social values, we unfortunately take the easy way out by, by having these zero sum narratives uh, that we've discussed. Uh, and so really only put forth one-sided policy pre uh, prescriptions. And so I think unfortunately that's what we're seeing occur in, um, you know, with the Equality Act, as you mentioned, it, you know, unless um, those 10 Republicans, um, you know, they get those 10 Republican votes, um, it's going to die, it will not pass. Um, and so again, I just think this is unnecess unnecessary, these, these zero sum narratives, these one-sided policy prescriptions, um, I think they're unnecessarily unnecessary. And I think that there is enough agreement here uh, to be able to advance civil rights for everyone, gay people, trans people, people of faith. And I think it's really up to lawmakers to take advantage of the opportunity. Yeah, because right now, you know, as it stands, like you were saying, you know, it's a bit of a standoff, um, you know, just numbers wise. So it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. It's, a, it's also, I think, important to understand, even though this hasn't necessarily come out publicly, I think it's understood that there aren't 50 votes amongst the Democrats to pass the Equality Act as it stands right now in the Senate. Um, so if it okay. were to go to a vote right now, uh, there aren't even 50 votes as written. So it's not just a Republican versus Democrat. Now, the Democrats that, you know, are opposed to it have not come out as publicly and, and so on. But there's there are several Democrats who, you know, we have reason to believe expressed significant concerns about it as drafted. And again, it's it's not that the Equality Act and this idea can't pass or, you know, you know, is something that can happen. It's just there needs to be a bilateral discussion and sort of the HRC, our way or the highway approach, uh, which really has been the approach. There's been zero willingness to negotiate on this. Uh, it just hasn't, uh, you know, it just isn't going to get this bill passed. This is all so interesting. And obviously with something so complex um, and delicate in terms of two uh, protected classes, you know, I keep saying that, but that's really what it comes down to. And that's why, you know, it's um, come down to, you know, us versus them in terms of, you know, the numbers and like legislation and even drafting it and everything. It's just so fascinating, um, especially since it's a recent phenomena um, for something for this type of conflict to get to this point. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, we'll, we'll just see at this point, is there a specific timeline? Because I know uh, President Biden says he would want to see something, you know, advancing LGBT rights by April. Um, 
which is, you know, in a couple of weeks, technically. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, you I know, have some bad news. <laughs> you, you, might get your vaccine, you might get your vaccine shot before you get uh, the Equality Act passed. Yeah, but it, right. perhaps, you know, just more conversations are needed. Um, like you were saying, Melissa, um, both with lawmakers, but even within, you know, the Adventist church, um, because there's also the fear that people won't take the time to understand the nuances of what we're saying and just see, oh, the Adventist church is opposed it. Therefore, I, you know, as an individual member or pastor or elder would, you know, enact some form of discrimination. And that's certainly not what is happening here. But then, you know, we don't want to see adverse effects of what's happening here um, take place based on misunderstanding. But then, you know, have to be multiple conversations. It's an ongoing thing. Um, yeah. Any final? Yeah. Thoughts? Yeah. Well, I, and I was going to say, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And, and that's why I'm so appreciative of the opportunity today to have this conversation with you. Um, and I, I wanted to share with you a quote uh, from one of our advocacy partners, Tyler Deaton, who heads, he's the policy uh, head for the American Unity Fund. Uh, which is the uh, uh, Republican LGBT rights uh, group. And, and as I said, part of our coalition, but one of the things that he you pointed out- a Republican out, LGBT rights coalition group? Yes, ma'am. Oh, wow. Um, and, yeah. don't, don't, don't have your stereotypes now about who I, supports you know, what. I was just unaware, Taj. <laughs> I was just purely unaware. You can't be we're making- all, we're, all, we're all learning here today. Yeah. But, one of the things um, that he said, you know, as, as a gay man, he, uh, and who who um, both respects, um, I think, you know, advocates for LGBT civil rights, but also respects that sort of historic place that religion has held in society. So his, what he said, and, and I was just going to quote that to you guys, was he says, Americans founders anticipated today's civic and religious debates and disagreements because they are not so different from the debates of the 18th century. Our nation is big enough and strong enough to accommodate a wide range of beliefs and practices. Our diversity is part of America's strength. And again, as a Christian, um, those words resonate with me because we have a God, we serve a God who is big enough and strong enough and allows us um, as our creator to have those differences. Um, and he certainly points us in a direction that he uh, believes is is most reflective of his love for us, um, but that ultimately those decisions are ours, and I am humbled by that. Yeah, they're ours, and you know, at the end of the end of the day, you know, we still want to see you know people treated fairly. You know, at the end of the Amen. day, um, in our in yep. our different spheres. Uh, Todd, any final thoughts? No, I think Melissa said it well there. I just think we need to you know come to a resolution on this that accommodates all the interests and sort of drop this winner-take-all uh, approach that, quite frankly, you know, we're, we've talked about this mostly from a left perspective today, um, but, you know, the, the, the conservative Republicans and others have, have been, you know, equally sort of unwilling to move, and we just need to move past all that. Yeah, and you said, you know, resolution, but it, with this complexity, it certainly, certainly won't happen overnight. Um, we just have to, you know, remain engaged and you know, and listen with, you know, open minds and uh, yeah, have wonderful conversations like we did today. So thank you again, uh, Melissa and Todd for your time and your expertise. Um, when do you have any timeline that we can 
grant our audience in terms of when we think we may see something. I'm just going to tell people to subscribe to news points and, you know, just, (laughs) you know, that's how you're going to find out. But any, any, you know, even though it's on the Senate floor or, you know, Senate's uh, talking about today, any, any inside scoop. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't think we know that because I don't think that it will be brought to a vote on the floor. You know, when we expect it to pass the committee today. Right. And so it, I don't uh, imagine that um, the uh, majority part, um, uh, you know, will bring the, the bill to a vote until they're sure they have the, the votes for it, right? And so I think um, we really don't know um, when that will take place um, or if it will take place. It may, um, you know, just uh, end up this congressional term, as we all know, congressional um, terms are, or sessions are two years and we've just begun this new one yeah. uh, in January. So, yeah, so just a very long tuned. way of saying we don't know. And yeah, definitely stay tuned to Newspoint and this yes. podcast. Yes. NADAdventist.org. Click on news. <laughs> All right. Thank you again, Todd and Melissa. So I just said it, but it bears repeating. If you want to keep up with this news with the Equality Act and Fairness for All, you have to subscribe to News Points. As you hear me say every episode, it's our weekly digital newsletter that has news stories, special announcements, and media resources. It is the one-stop shop to get news relating to the Seventh-day Adventist Church in North America. There's no beating around the bush with this one. So you have to go to nadadventist.org, then click on news to subscribe. That's nadadventist.org, then hit news in order to subscribe. All right. This episode was edited, produced, and hosted by me, Milan Medley. Its executive producers are Dan Weber, Julio Munoz, and Kimberly Moran. Graphics were by Jonathan LaPointe. Listen and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We only want five-star ratings, so nothing less. And make sure you write a glowing review. If you have any questions that you want to ask me or have me pass along to Todd or Melissa, send them to ontheair at nadavenous.org. That's ontheair at nadavenous.org. That's all for now. We'll see you in April. <laughs>